Welcome to Libraries Out Loud, a podcast produced by the University of Buffalo Libraries. I'm your host, Omar Brown, Education Technology Support Associate and Silverman Library on UB's North Campus. In each episode of Libraries Out Loud, we'll explore connections between the UB libraries and the research, learning, teaching, and creative activities of our faculty, students, and staff. Greetings from the University of Buffalo. Uh, my name is Erin Hartnett, and I'm the Director of Advancement for UB Libraries. And I am here on the UB North Campus in UB Libraries recording studio number one. And I have the distinct pleasure of being with Jim Maynard, Curator of the Poetry Collection, and Allison Frazier, Associate Curator of the Poetry Collection. And we are here to talk today about our world-leading James Joyce Collection, um, and it happens to be 2022, which is the 100th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses. So Jim, Allison, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Um, to start off, I would love for you to talk about what makes our James Joyce Collection the world's greatest. Thanks, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with Allison to talk about James Joyce, uh, soon to be Bloomsday, soon to be June 2022. It's a very exciting time for us in the world of Joyce Studies. The UB Poetry Collection holds the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of manuscripts and other materials by and about the renowned Irish art artist. Uh, when we talk about being the largest and most comprehensive collection, we're talking about having more than 10,000 pages of Joyce's working drafts, uh, notebooks, manuscripts, photographs, correspondence, portraits, publishing records, important memorabilia and ephemera, as well as Joyce's Paris Library. And supplementing the archive is a complete set of first editions, including most issues and states of every book published by Joyce, translations, a large number of his magazine appearances, and virtually all significant criticism. And it's not just Joyce that is what makes the poetry collection the library of record for 20th and 21st century poetry in English. Correct, Allison? Tell us, tell us why J the UB James Joyce collection is further distinguished because it is a part of the poetry collection. Yeah, that's a really good point, Erin. Um, so the UB James Joyce collection is one of 170 archival collections um, in the poetry collection, um, which means that in the greater context of our collections, it is a really valuable addition, um, but it's very much in conversation with uh, the record of 20th and 21st century Anglophone poetics. Uh, so the poetry collection was founded in 1935 by Charles Abbott, and we have served as the library of record of 20th and 21st century uh, Anglophone poetry since then. Um, so we collect both print materials, um, including books, but also book objects, artist books, um, magazines, and scholarship, and then also these archival collections. So scholars of um, of literature can come to use our collections and really have everything at their fingertips they need um, to do their work. And the poetry collection, if I'm correct in asking this, um, served, it was the first of its kind, correct? And it served as a prototype for other um, university libraries to follow? Yes, absolutely. So when Charles Abbott founded the collection, he was the first person to systematically collect both the print books and then also ask the poets for their working drafts. And at the time, um, you know, nobody was doing this and poets often responded um, 
very confused if they said, oh, this is my trash. <laughs> um, but, you know, I usually throw this away. But next time when I write a poem, I'll send you my drafts. Um, so he really started this movement to really document the evolution of poetry in the 20th century, which had really far-ranging effects. Um, and in 1941, we acquired our first collection, um, the way that we think of collections, the Dylan Thomas collection. Um, and from there, that kind of paved the way for other major acquisitions, including the James Joyce collection. And Jim, how many years after the Dylan Thomas collection did the Joyce collection come to Buffalo? And, and how did that how did that happen? Tell us about that. It's an exciting story. And of course, once everyone finds out that we have this material in Buffalo, they want to know, A, uh, how did it get here? And B, can they come see it? And I hope we'll get a chance to talk about both of those questions here with you today. But to answer your question about when, um, the Joyce materials first came about nine years after the Dylan Thomas acquisition. And uh, overall, it came to us from four primary sources in six waves of acquisitions. So the first was in the fall of 1950. This was the content of the exposition on homage of James Joyce that was on view at the Librairie Lahoon in Paris. And this was an exhibition that was uh, organized by a number of uh, friends of Joyce's family, uh, particularly his widow, Nora, and his son, Giorgio, who uh, were trying to raise some funds for themselves eight years after Joyce's death in post-war Europe. And to do this, they put uh, all of their family materials and collections on view uh, at the Gallery Lahoon. And at the end of it, they auctioned off the exhibition. And Buffalo uh, had, uh, as you like to say, as our advancement officer, both the foresight um, and the philanthropy. philanthropy, yes, thank you very much, <laughs> to, to make it possible. So the way the story goes is Oscar Silverman, namesake of the Silverman Library, where we're sitting here in the mm -hmm. library's recording studio, was in Paris uh, on sabbatical from his teaching in the UB English department, saw the exhibition, was very impressed by it, knew it would be a wonderful addition to this growing collection of manuscripts that Allison was talking about as part of the poetry collection, and came back to Buffalo and set in a series of most of events that would ultimately lead to Buffalo acquiring the first batch of materials from Joyce's family. That was followed in 1951 and 1959 by materials that came from B.W. Hubish, Joyce's publisher in New York. Uh, there were then two more significant uh, waves of acquisitions from Sylvia Beach, uh, owner of Shakespeare and Company and infamous uh, publisher of Joyce's Ulysses. These came in 1959 and 1962, thanks to the financial support and really the hands-on negotiations of Constance and Walter Stafford. And this was followed then in 1968 um, by materials that came from Maria Jola, who with her husband uh, had edited the literary magazine Transition in Paris. And these were a series of page proofs of Joyce's late work Finnegan's Wake uh, that they had published. But the truth is, we continue to add to the collection um, however we can on a yearly and ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. And the collection also includes virtually all um, editions of Joyce's work um, and all criticism. So really, uh, it's very comprehensive in its scope. Mm -hmm. So we're in year, what, 71, 72? I'm not able to really do the math here. 70, now I'm screwing up, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Um, 1950, 2022. So 72 years. 72 years. Okay. Pausing so we can go back. <laughs> um, so in those 72 years that UB Libraries, the UB Poetry Collection specifically, has had the James Joyce Collection, um, 
tell us, you know, what, how it's primarily been used and what the vision has been for this collection? That's an excellent question. Um, by building this collection, it really made Buffalo one of, if not the capitals of Jewish studies and scholarship for those seven plus decades. And um, you had scholars and researchers and biographers coming from around the world to use the materials. Um, and, and they haven't stopped since, to be honest with you. And, I mean, we, we talk about Michael Grodin. Obviously, he's a Buffalonian, mm -hmm. um, beloved Michael Grodin, um, who sadly passed last year. Um, and he was one of those scholars that, that came um, in the, I think, the 60s or 70s, right? Sorry. Yeah, he used, um, used microfilm. Um, for he did his PhD at Princeton, um, so he had to you know use the material in absentia. Um, so he had microfilm, which of course is black and white, and he has this great story that he tells when he finally could get to Buffalo and see the manuscripts in person. Uh, and a lot of them are very colorful, including uh, one of our Ulysses notebooks in particular. Uh, and he says that it was like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where everything goes to Technicolor. Um, so there is this really amazing power of seeing the collection in person, even for scholars who are incredibly familiar with it. Um, but I think Michael Grodin is a really good example of a scholar who's used our collection because um, a lot of scholars who use our collection, especially you know, right from the jump, um, they recognize the importance and significance and um, potential of this collection for scholarship. And a lot of it has to do with genetic criticism, so looking through successive drafts of the text, looking at how the text evolves over time. Uh, but scholars have also done other work uh, related to, for instance, the social um, sphere around Joyce. So it's not just about Joyce, but it's also about, you know, Love Bank, Sylvia mm -hmm. Beach, her circle, and Shakespeare and Company, kind of broadening the scope um, to show how Joyce is part of a constellation of other writers and thinkers. Especially mo modernism, right? Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. around modernism? Um, and, you know, you talk, we've talked a lot about the manuscripts that we hold. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other materials and why it's so important to understanding Joyce as a writer, as a person? Well, I think for me, uh, in my experience, the Joyce collection is like the best literary archives in that it shows you how communal and social and public the act of publishing is. If the, writing, if the act of writing is relatively private, one really sees in a collection like this how many people were collaborating with Joyce, helping to edit Joyce, helping to type Joyce. And I know Joyce has a reputation of being um, a relatively modernist genius working in the isolation of his own brilliance. But the archive tells a very different story. And it shows what uh, people like B.W. Hubish were doing, what his uh, fellow writers were doing, what Sylvia Beach was doing, what his family was doing to help him produce the text that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some, you know, we've talked about some of the the transcribing that has gone from one version to the next, for, as you say, with typists or um, we can see because we spend so much time with the materials mm -hmm. that Joyce's handwriting was not easy to read and it got worse as mm -hmm. he got older. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really interesting. Jim, I've heard you tell this story specifically about... Um, you know, some of the changes that were made, Joyce ended up liking and wanted them to be kept, right, as part of the, the ongoing 
versions as the ongoing manuscripts. So. Yeah, I mean, the early, the early genesis of Ulysses was incredible. Um, and in many ways, it's been a uh, hundred years of studying what may have been errors, what were errors. Um, you know, these are debates that are not going to be easily solved. They haven't been easily solved or resolved. Um, but it's fascinating to see how Joyce working in Paris was communicating through Beach to the typesetter in Dijon, mm -hmm. most of whom all spoke French, not English. They were reading Joyce's cramped handwriting and doing the best they could to interpret it at the page setting stage. And in that process introduced errors, some of which Joyce liked better than his original mm -hmm. writing, um, many of which he tried to change back. So you see a lot of back and forth in, in how that uh, infamous novel came to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what's astounding to me is the foresight that people like Sylvia Beach, um, in particular, she comes to mind. Um, she just kept so many things related to her work with Joyce, related to Joyce himself. Can you talk a little bit, Allison? Especially, I'll add that we have an, ex an exhibition up in Special Collections right now, recognizing Beach's role in the publication of Ulysses. So, yeah. and you, you were um, oversaw that that exhi exhibit. So please tell us. Well, Sylvia Beach, I think, is a fascinating character. She would be somebody that we would talk about in the context of modernism, even without Ulysses or James Joyce, just because Shakespeare and Company was such a focal point um, of the expat community in Paris, uh, and it brought together that community with um, you know, the um, Parisian and European um, artistic communities. It is in Shakespeare and Company where uh, James Joyce met Ernest Hemingway, for instance, so really important literary partnerships and friendships were forged there. Um, and when she decided to publish Ulysses, Joyce couldn't get this published by anybody else, um, partly because it had already been published serially in the little magazine, The Little Review, um, and had been censored, so no English-speaking publisher would touch it because they knew in instantly it would be banned. Um, and so she offered to, to publish it. She was 34. This is her first book. Um, so she really started off on a, a very high note. Um, and, you know, she didn't just publish Ulysses for Joyce, but she also um, helped him with his day-to-day -day activities. He kind of used Shakespeare and Company as his office. He would come in every Wouldn't afternoon. Wouldn't he get mail there? Well, I yeah, think a lot, a lot of, of people, people get yeah. mail there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it, I mean, it really was, it was people's home away from home, mm -hmm. uh, really. And Beach herself was American, and she moved to Paris in the late teens. Um, she met her partner, Adrien Monnier, um, and decided to, to stay in Paris, and that's where she, she lived the rest of her life. Um, and, um, you know, she obviously lent a lot of books to Joyce, some of which he returned. Um, and you have she, a ledger that, <laughs> yes. right? We yeah, have a ledger. So one of the things we have in the collection that she had saved was, you know, all the books that Joyce had had borrowed and then the, the return dates, and not all of them have return <laughs> dates. Uh, and she writes about this, too, in her memoir, Shakespeare and Company. Um, and in any case, you know, she was, she was helping him financially. There was just a lot of things she was doing. And when um, the book was censored and, um, and also pirated, she became involved legally in, um, in its uh, distribution. So she was really involved in a lot of different ways in, in Joyce's life, in Ulysses. 
Uh, so Joyce could never fully repay her for all of this, of course. So one of the things that he would do was he would gift her various things, um, including, for instance, his portrait of the artist notebook. Um, and what Beach did in, in that case and in any case where she, she retained things herself, um, she would usually write a little note that contextualized um, you know, the gift or what the item was so that people like us would know what it was. So she was really you know, not just a publisher and a bookseller, uh, but also an archivist. Mm -hmm. And she really understood, even when there wasn't a place like the Poetry Collection, that this would be valuable for people. And she kept a lot of things that you know, we would consider you know, we would have considered to be trash um, or we wouldn't have considered to have any value that now have extraordinary value. Like for instance, the order sheets um, that people use to subscribe to Ulysses, uh, which are just amazing um, to look at now. There's people like Peggy Guggenheim, um, W.B. Yeats, uh, William Carlos Williams, and then there's also other people that you know are just everyday people. We don't know their names, um, but it's a really fascinating record to see you know who bought the first edition and of how Ulysses much and for how, how much. much. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Jim, what are some of your favorite pieces, materials in the collection? You know, that's uh, <laughs> always a difficult question for any of our uh, manuscript collections, but I think given the significance of what Shakespeare and Company and Sylvie Beach did for the publication of the novel, I'd have to say it's probably our copy number two of the first edition of Ulysses, which Joyce had gifted to Beach uh, in gratitude for her selfless act of publishing it, um, but it's an astounding association copy with his note of gratitude, with his uh, homage, his poetic homage that he writes to her, who is Sylvia? What is she that all our scribes commend her? Yankee young and brave is she, the West this man did lend her that all books might publish be, hence our title of the exhibition. And um, to think about that as, as emblematic of their relationship, as emblematic of the material history of modernism, which is documented in her Shakespeare and Company records. And to think that that act and that collaboration in 1922 is what spawned the last 100 years of influence and significance for Joyce readers and academics and lovers, amateurs around the world. Mm -hmm. So here we are, 2022, 100th anniversary. Now what? What's in store for the UB James Joyce collection? Jim, do you want to take this? Sure. Well, um, we have some exciting plans, I have to say. And uh, in order to guarantee the success and longevity of the collection for 72 more years to come, we are uh, in the middle of a comprehensive campaign to guarantee the collection's future. At the heart of that campaign is a public James Joyce Museum in historic Abbott Hall, named after Charles Abbott, founder of the Poetry Collection. Which is where the, it was all located. Which is where that's... for many decades it was originally uh, stored and accessed. You're, you're exactly right. It's um, a homecoming. It would be very much a homecoming. And it would put the collection back in the city of Buffalo. It would make it more publicly accessible because that, if anything, if we have a mandate for the future of the Joyce Collection, it's to make it more publicly visible and accessible for a wide and diverse audience. We've, as we were talking before, have had uh, many, many years of academic researchers, but we simply haven't had the facilities to showcase and present it to the public in any kind of meaningful way. So that is the heart of the campaign, is the uh, 
the Joyce Museum. And in addition to that, um, and this is a, a really a holistic vision for how to make best use of the collection going forward. And so the museum would be paired with endowments for uh, preservation and acquisitions, a James Joyce curator position, and programming exhibition funds. And what would the curator really, how would that make a difference in the collection's future? Well, we're thinking about this holistically. So what can you do with the right materials in the right space and the right people to supervise them? So we're hoping that uh, a James Joyce curator will be able to significantly expand our outreach and promotion of the collection. Uh, it will be someone who can run Joyce-related programming through the museum, can open up the doors of the museum to invite a wide audience from Buffalo and around the world, and I'm envisioning a docent program, I'm envisioning a students in the schools program to come and experience it. You know, we really do want to make this collection something that um, people of all ages and all familiarities with Joyce can feel like they can experience uh, on their own. Mm -hmm. Because if I think there's one lesson we've had in the recent past, it's that increasingly it's not academic researchers that want to come and use this material, but it's the general public. It's people that may have read Dubliners in high school. It may be people that have tried Ulysses but couldn't get through it. It may be people because of their own Irish and American heritage, they feel an important connection to Ireland through Joyce and want to come and see his family portraits and his personal belongings and his, his eyeglasses. His walking sticks mm -hmm. and eyeglasses, exactly right. So it's, um, it's thinking about how we can take the collection and do a lot more with it than we currently can. And where are we with that? Well, we have a wonderful advancement director <laughs> named Aaron Hartnett, who's been working night and day uh, and twice on Sundays to do everything she can to help build a wide basis of support for this collection. But I'm excited to say that last Bloomsday, we were able to finally announce these public plans and these fundraising plans. And since that time, we've had uh, an anchor gift by UB alumnus Stephen Still for $100,000 as part of a challenge gift. Um, and excitedly, more recently, we have received a $100,000 challenge grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to go towards the design phase of the museum. Right now, we have some ideas about what's possible, about what we think we can do, but the next step, the really first major step, will be to work with a, a professional museum vendor uh, design firm to actually design it from top to bottom and to think about what stories we want to tell with what materials and to what audiences and then we'll have uh, a truer sense of both the infrastructure that will be required as well as what those costs will be to be able to fundraise. So right now we're in the process of fundraising approximately a million dollars for this initial design phase with uh, estimated costs of the entire museum space to be about ten million dollars but a lot of that could change depending upon events in the world and what the are. Yeah, what the costs are. And that project, once we receive the design, once the design is completed, it's pretty, it's really shovel-ready, for lack of a better term, correct? Absolutely. The space, it's about 4,500 square feet in Abbott Hall, uh, is just about ready to go. And we're currently doing some work to get ready to put out uh, requests for qualifications and call for proposals for the design work. Um, as our fundraising advances along with the NIH grant. So what I think about that's 
really leaves me kind of in not disbelief so much, but it's like we're we're a part of history here. We are. So, um, and everyone who supports our endeavors, just like Beach, just like Maria Jola, just like B.W. Hubish. So talk a little bit about that, Allison. Tell us, tell us how people can be a part of history with um, helping to secure Joyce's legacy here, not only in Buffalo, but as the, the world's greatest Joyce collection. Yeah, I think that's a really great, interesting point um, because truly the history of this collection and the history of how it got to Buffalo is very collaborative. It's not just been about the librarians who work in the poetry collection, but really about the community. Um, so when we had the first acquisition, really that came through Oscar Silverman and other people working in the libraries, but it also came through the Wixers and their support. Who was a, a, a very influential philanthropic family in Buffalo at the time, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And um, and then later when we got Beach's collection, um, as Jim had mentioned at the very beginning, the Staffords were there in Paris with Oscar Silverman doing these hands-on negotiations. You know, they provided the financial support, but they were also there, you know, negotiating and, and you know, making sure that Beach felt like her materials had a good home in Buffalo and they'd be well taken care of. Um, so we hope to continue that that sort of collaborative work. Um, I think it would be fair to say that Stephen still has um, been participating in that with us, and I couldn't be happier uh, for his support. Um, but really, it is about community and in this collection, as much as the collection itself is about the community of modernism, um, the the history of this collection in Buffalo is also about community. So what else do we have planned for 2022? Well, where do you want to start? <laughs> it's been a busy year, and we're uh, yes. just at the first day of June. Which means there's only six months left. So what have we done, and where are we going? That's a great question. Um, we've been strategically making plans for this year as an opportunity to both share and promote the collection more widely on a global, regional, and national level, but also as an opportunity to help promote some of these long-term goals and priorities for the Joyce campaign. So what we've been working on this year is a number of different programs and exhibitions and partnerships uh, in Buffalo, around the country, and internationally that include um, us hosting an international public celebration virtually of the life and work of Joyce scholar Michael Groden. This was back in March on the one year anniversary of his passing. Uh, you had mentioned Michael earlier. We've done a number of tours and presentations and events like this since January, uh, promoting the collection to a variety of different audiences. We've served as the major lender to the Morgan Library and Museum's exhibition 100 Years of James Joyce's Ulysses, which opens up in a matter of days. Uh, that will be in New York City at the Morgan from June 3rd to October 2nd. We've also loaned materials to the Harry Ransom Center's exhibition, Women in the Making of James Joyce Ulysses. That will be on view uh, through July 17, I believe. Um, we've been working with production companies on documentaries. Uh, we've been working locally with the Buffalo Irish Festival this summer to promote some things um, closer to home. And then uh, what will be very exciting is that Allison and I will be leading as hosts a UB trip to Ireland come September that will be largely literary themed and taking a look at uh, a lot of the literary heritage and history in Dublin and then uh, kind of cross Ireland trip to look at some architectural 
and archaeological sites and ending up in Sligo with uh, what is, of course, Yates' country. Mm -hmm. So we're very excited about and all of this. there's still room on that trip. And there's, the, <laughs> yes, there's still room if, uh, if anyone is interested. Um, but, you know, this is, a, this is an exciting year. Um, you know, Joyce truly is an international phenomenon. And it's no understatement to say that uh, he's being celebrated in his work and his collaborators are all being celebrated around the world. And we're very proud and happy to be part of the partnerships that we've been a part of. And Allison, I'm sure I've forgotten a few things along the way. So I know you've been very instrumental in a lot of these partnerships. If I've forgotten anything, well, one thing feel I'll, free to jump in. I'll add um, is we've contributed a lot of visual materials to exhibitions and publications and other celebrations worldwide, um, especially, of course, in, in major Joyce cities like Zurich or Dublin. Um, or Paris, uh, but Luxembourg as well. So it's been really exciting to see the different ways that people are celebrating Ulysses this year. Erin, mm -hmm. we have the pleasure of working with you very closely on these and other projects related not just to the Joyce Collection, but to the Poetry Collection. So I wanted to ask you a question if I could. Would sure. That, would that be all right? Sure. Well, let me ask you, as an advancement professional, why is it important to you to be fundraising for these James Joyce projects in Buffalo at this point in time? Wow, Jim. Uh, nobody ever asked me that question, so thank you. Um, You're welcome. I feel that so much about Buffalo, you know, there's a mural that says, help keep Buffalo a secret, which is ironic because we really don't want to keep it a secret, right? Um, people across the world don't, a lot of people don't know how wonderful Buffalo is. And um, the James Joyce Collection is one of those significant assets in the Buffalo community. But it is also to many, not to scholars, but to the general public, it is one of those secrets. So um, as a lifelong Buffalonian and an English major back in the day, um, it's really important for me to beat that drum and share with the world that the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of James Joyce materials is in Buffalo, New York, which is a great city um, for so many reasons. Also because it has so many great people like yourselves. Um, but, you know, it's the same with the University at Buffalo too. You know, there's, we are telling our story and sharing it with the world and the ambition to become one of the top 25 research institutions. Um, that's a really ambitious goal, but we're chipping away at it. Um, I think we're now ranked 31 or 30th this year. Um, and so we're on our way there, right? And it's if you, if you set a goal, if you articulate it, and then you have the right people behind it, you'll get there. And I truly believe that we will get there with UB, but also with the James Joyce Collection and the Poetry Collection and UB Libraries. Um, which is an important strategy um, and tactic in getting to that top 25 ambition because um, a lot of that is about international reputation and, and institutional reputation. Um, and to be able to say that we have one of the greatest literary collections in the world is quite a coup. Um, I also think it's important to mention that Buffalo has a significant um, Irish population, um, South Buffalo, the First Ward, 
and as Aaron Hurley Hartnett. I was going to say it. So says it. Yep. Aaron Hurley Hartnett. Yep. With a mother whose maiden name was Sullivan, whose mother's name maiden name was Hennessy. So that is also for personally for me, it's um, just another reason, right? That there's that connection there too. So, um, but we're also on an international border. Canada's right across the Niagara River there, across Lake Erie. So. You know, I think from an international perspective, people forget about or, or don't know how close, you know, Buffalo's closer to Toronto than it is to New York City. Um, and we already have such a robust cultural and historical um, presence. You know, the Albright Knox is one of the, the greatest art museums for modern art and contemporary art. And it's in the process of just growing both physically and um, from its presence. So um, the Birchfield Penny, right? The um, Klein Hands and the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. So for everyone who has not yet been to Buffalo, this is just another reason to come. And once the museum is open, it'll make it that much easier to come, you know, pop in off the street on a on, in, on an evening or on a weekend. Whereas right now, you have to make an appointment and it has to be from the hours of 10 to four, typically. I mean, we do make exceptions. Yep. Um, but for all of those reasons, and I mean, a, a collection of this significance, it deserves to be shared with a broad global audience, so. Well, very well said. And Thank you. Obviously, there's your passion and your enthusiasm which makes you such a great partner in these endeavors. And I'm always mindful of how fortunate I am to do what I do as curator of these collections. And certainly chief among them is the chance to work with the two of you. So here's to the future. Cheers. Slancha. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I feel the same way about both of you. And thank you so much for joining me, I guess, as your interviewer well, thank today. You. It was fun. I mean, it's just another work day for us, right? This of is course. This we do all day, every day. <laughs> Only today the microphone around, was on. Yeah, sit around and talk about about Joyce and other great um, literary artists so um, well this but is the best part of the job I know the with other people. I know yes and I know when we were able to come back after um, COVID and start giving tours and sharing the materials with people in person I could see that was definitely Jim and Allison's favorite part of the job so absolutely and I would just want to say at the end here as we're winding down that I would be remiss if I didn't send all of our listeners uh, an invitation to come see us. Uh, you can send an, an email to lpo-poetry at buffalo.edu. We'd be happy to arrange an appointment for you to see some of the materials that we've been talking about today. And as Aaron had indicated, our public hours are Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And we'll hope you have a chance to come see us soon in person to view Joyce or any of our other collections. And someday soon, not have to make an appointment. This is true. Just walk in off the street. And I will say, if there's anyone out there interested in supporting our endeavors philanthropically, please don't hesitate to reach out to the email that Jim just shared, or um, you can reach me at e-h-h-a-r-t-n-e at buffalo.edu. Thank you both. This has been a lot of fun today. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Libraries Out Loud, and stay tuned for our next look at the UB Libraries on campus.